I never forgot that the rest of my life in understanding what training and rank, accountability, and responsibility is. And when we're given the privilege and the honor of senior rank, we're given privileges, we're given more responsibilities, but we're giving the ultimate accountability. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Navy Vice Admiral Dr. Matthew L. Nathan. Dr. Nathan is an internal medicine physician who held many significant strategic roles in Navy medicine, culminating in service as the 37th Surgeon General of the Navy. In this episode, Dr. Nathan describes his pathway into military medicine, and he shares some important leadership lessons he has learned in multiple operational and strategic assignments. He talks about being in command during the merger of Bethesda Naval and Walter Reed Army Hospital, and the challenges and successes that came with that experience. He also talks about his role in leading the congressionally chartered Recovering Warrior Task Force. Dr. Nathan illustrates lessons following military retirement during his time in leadership at a large civilian hospital system, as well as participating in Harvard University's Advanced Leadership Initiative for two years. Find out more about Vice Admiral Nathan and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome the former Navy Surgeon General, retired Vice Admiral Dr. Matthew L. Nathan to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Doug. Thanks for having me. Admiral Nathan, you completed your undergraduate education at Georgia Tech. Tell us about your pathway to joining military medicine. It's an interesting journey. I'll start off by saying I'm probably a bit of an anomaly. I'm one of the rare, and I don't know of any other guys who, gals who gravitated up to Surgeon General who didn't train in the service. I went to college. I went to Georgia Tech. I ended up at Georgia Tech sort of coincidentally because my mother became very ill when I was in high school, and we brought her back to Georgia uh, where I had an uncle who was in healthcare and got her into Emory Medical Center. But she passed on at the end of my high school career, so I stayed in Georgia with my dad and went to Georgia Tech. I ended up at the Medical College of Georgia. We didn't have a lot of money, and so I didn't want to take a lot of loans. And while I was in my first year of medical school, I, I met a fellow named John Hudson who was in the Health Services Scholarship Program. And so he sold me on the, the stipend and paying all the tuition and the books and everything else. And we became best friends in medical schools. I asked for a deferral to go into a civilian residency. Probably not the brightest move on my part because I was only making 13 grand a year as an intern in the civilian sector. And I found out later how much the Navy was paying as a 03 in the service. John didn't get a deferral. He was allowed to do one transitional year and then he was assigned to the Marine Corps out of Camp Lejeune. So we kind of lost track of each other. He had a baby. Uh, I was at his wedding. I stood up for him as a groomsman at his wedding. And then tragically, John was killed a year later as the physician on scene in the Lebanon barracks in Beirut, the truck bomb came through, which shook us all to our core. I tell that story 
because I didn't come from a military background. I didn't really understand all the ins and outs of the military. For me, I started out as a means to an end for a scholarship program to help defray the cost of medical school. And I went out, got my training in the civilian academic center and had long hair and did not look like a poster child for the military. But I learned, even before entering actual active duty, I learned the role and the risks and the contribution, the ultimate sacrifice that can be made by all service members, including the ones providing medical support with John. End of the journey, I end up being Surgeon General, and I kept in touch with his, his wife, his widow, Lisa, who never remarried. She, she raised their son to be a fine young man, and, and she said John was her soulmate. I had Lisa put my jacket on me, my three-star jacket, at my induction ceremony as Surgeon General. So that's how I ended up in Navy Medicine. Wow, that's a great story. Well, you and I share a common bond that I love in the fact that we both went to the Medical College of Georgia for medical school. What sparked your interest in doing internal medicine while you were there? I think it came down to the fact that at the time, as I was rotating through different rotations and each rotation, if you were like me in med school, each rotation I rotated through, I thought I had that disease, right? When I rotated through cardiology, I was having chest pain, I was having an MI and then everything else. But I'll never forget a quote by a very good resident that I had when I was a medical student on his ward team. And he said, in internal medicine, we take care of the sickest patients in the state of Georgia. And he was right. I mean, we were there in the ICU and critical care and the surgeons might argue that some because you take care of some pretty, pretty sick people. But I noticed at the end of the day, when the surgeons had finished everything they could offer from a surgical standpoint, the patient was still really having a challenging, life-threatening spiral. They transferred them to the medicine service, and so, or they asked the internist to come follow. So I enjoyed that challenge, and I enjoyed the broad scope of medicine a little bit back in the day, right? Because now we're so compartmentalized in our specialties and in what we do and don't do based on our niches. But I like the full service approach to internal medicine. After your residency, you early on had several assignments all around the globe. And one we'd like to particularly explore is your role as a battalion surgeon in the 1st Marine Corps Division. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that shaped a little bit the rest of the trajectory that you've had in military medicine? If any young men or women are out there who are starting out early in their military careers or thinking about entering the military health care, you might be like me, in that I was very intimidated by the thought of having to go to sea, quote unquote, or having to go with the Marines because the Navy supports the Marine Corps medically. And I was hoping to sort of just do my three years to get in and get out, pay back my time. And I had an opportunity to spend time with the Marines on deployments and go to sea a few times on deployments. And I can honestly say those were the highlights of my career. I, I'm glad the Navy didn't give me a choice and said, hey, Matt, we're not asking. We're telling you, you're going to go support and augment the battalion out in Pendleton. You're going to go to sea on this deployment or do that. I tell people all the time, if you're going to be in the service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, be in the service. Do the things that you can only do in the service so that when you look back on it, whether you're in for five years or 30 years, Look back on it and really get something out of it. You go in with trepidation, but I think most people will find that it creates memories and experiences and competences that you can't see anywhere else. So 
with the Marine Corps. That was still in the Cold War. We were still in a, a Soviet Union era. I was with the Marines, and we deployed in some areas down in Central America to take care of some peacekeeping things down there at the tail end of the Reagan administration. We trained a lot in cold weather training in Bridgeport, California, because that particular battalion was mapped to the Norway Pass region and the event that we were going to have to fight the Soviets in that part of the world. What I learned in the Marine Corps was what every Navy corpsman was in their mission and their spirit and loyalty. They will meet you more than halfway in making you a member of the family, bringing you into the club and taking care of you. It's just an amazing organization. I hope every young man or young woman has a chance to experience it. So I do kind of want to hear about how you prepare in California for a potential battle in Norway, Finland, the coast of the USSR. Yeah, well, you go to the top of the Sierras where you learn to wear all the cold weather equipment. You go up there, as we did in, in February, March timeframe, where the ambient temperature is always below freezing. You learn to live in a snow cave. You take a shovel and you dig a hole in the snow and you learn how to sleep in a snow cave. You learn how to make your way. And then this is just a sort of an interesting, funny story that I think highlights what we do. You're going to train young Marines to ski and, and, and shoot at the same time if they have to. And so a lot of these never been on skis in their life. So the gunny sergeant takes him to the top of the slope and I'm there during the evolution and it's starting to get dark and foggy. I'm getting a little nervous about all these young kids who have been told to stay at the top of the hill and not point their skis downhill. And I'm asking the gunny sergeant if he thinks it's such a bright idea with the fog coming in and the sun going down. And he's asking me if I'm worried if the Russians are going to fight at night. And I said, well, I don't know about that. But while we're arguing, of course, the young Marines being young Marines, and the reason that you want them fighting for you and fighting with you is because they're fearless. They start turning their skis downhill, and one by one, they sort of go in a chain reaction down the slopes, screaming and yelling and yelling the gunny's name because they can't stop. They, and they sort of disappear in the fog below. And gunny are looking at each other. That's the, half the group is down the hill below the fog line, and it's just eerie calm for him. And then you hear it, of course. You hear, Corman, Corman up! And so we go down there, and these guys, are they're all mangled up in big balls, and they're not hurt too bad. One guy's bad, bad sprain. So we have to sort that out. Punchline is that that night, the gunny sergeant and I get called into the, uh, the battalion commander's tent. He's the only one who had a tent. We get called into his tent. He starts screaming at us about what a bunch of idiots we are and how what happened. And the gunny just turns and says, sir, the doctor was present and approved the evolution. At which point he excuses the gunny and just starts tearing me up and then do my, you know, sorry, sorry, sir. And I leave and go outside. He's having a cup of coffee over a campfire. And he says, hey, sir, a cup of coffee? And I said, sure, gunny. And I said, hey, gunny, you sort of threw me under the bus back there. And, and he says, I'll never forget. He looked at me and he goes, sir. Only one of us are going to be a career Marine, and they you. And so I, I thought there was merit to that argument. Okay, so I'm from Georgia, too. Were you one of the people on the skis that didn't know how to go, or had you skied no, before? No, no, I was... Oh, I had skied before, yeah, no, but I wasn't on skis. I was there just to basically stand by and monitor it for medical necessity with my corpsman. Well, at least they didn't have live ammunition. Right. Nope. They uh, they were on these older wooden circa 1950 skis with circa bindings from that time. And uh, nobody got seriously hurt. If you're going to train, you got to train the way you fight. And so uh, sometimes you have to push 
push people to the limit to make sure they give them the skills they need to, to be able to be optimal in the, in the fight. Yeah, even at night. Even at night. She mentioned earlier that the Navy set you out at sea, and I know that that was on the USS Blue Ridge in Saipan. Tell us about your role during those sea assignments and the type of medical care you were providing. Sort of two different platforms. So the Saipan was earlier in my career, and I'd been on some short deployments on destroyers and things like that to ride along doing radiation exposure measurements and things like that. But Saipan was a LHA, it was a landing helicopter assault craft that was on a MedMarg where we went out the Atlantic and patrolled the Mediterranean, actually got called off our routine patrol and, and posted on the coast of Beirut when there was a hostage crisis there. And then we'd come back out through the Straits of Gibraltar and get back in the Atlantic. And we had a whole battalion of Marines embarked on the ship. At any given time, there's really two things the Navy has out patrolling the seaways. And one of them is aircraft carriers, which most people know about. And the other is these amphibious landing ships, which have Marine groups embarked on them. And they're out there basically to be the, the 911 for support for our allies and to show deterrence to our aggressors and adversaries. The Army and the Air Force can, can get there in a hurry, but they can't be on scene everywhere. So the Navy patrols, much like a cop on a beach or a friend in the neighborhood. And when needed, these Marines can be on shore in a short period of time to establish a beachhead, hold an opening, wait for reinforcements for Army support and further Marine support and Air Force air support. And the Navy's there, of course, to provide firepower offshore and deterrence under the water. So that's, that was my role there, was basically taking care of being one of the groups that would go, go ashore with the Marines and establish battalion aid stations and beachheads. This, my tour with the 7th Fleet came much later in my career when I was in 06, and I was the 7th Fleet surgeon, the position advisor to the 7th Fleet commander, stationed out of Yokosuka, Japan. Again, that's the Navy's away team. That's the team that's positioned with its carrier and all of its support craft uh, in Japan, ready to be on scene in, the, in those waters that take days to get there from San Diego or from Hawaii, but you can be there in a day or in hours, depending on the issue in those parts of the world. So that was must, mostly an administrative job and I occasionally helped out the ship's doctor doing some care here and there, but it was very strategic and we worked directly for Pack Fleet. And our job was to make sure that all the medical assets that were deployed to the Pacific theater in those parts of the waters from Australia up to Russia were ready to go and medically ready. So where were you on 9-11 and how did your perspective of being in the Navy change during that time period? Yeah, I think everybody remembers where they were that day, right? So I was the deputy commander, second in charge, XO, if you will, at Portsmouth Naval Medical Center. And I was sitting at my desk, beautiful Tuesday morning, and my assistant came in and handed me a note and said one of the towers went down. I turned on the TV and assumed that it was some freakish commercial airline accident or something. And then saw the second plane go in and we knew we were in a war of terror. At that time, I, I turned to the director of administration, who was a former Vietnam veteran, Purple Heart awardee, good guy. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, our lives are never going to be the same after this. And I said, this is going to change how we live on this planet. We were then dealing with all the various 
permutations of potential terror along the eastern seaboard and everywhere else. Ironically, I had done a tour prior to that in the Navy Annex as an assignment officer. And so I called up some folks that I still knew there, and it was just chilling to hear them tell the story of having to be looking out the window on the fourth deck of the Navy Annex and, and watching the plane, not recognizing what was happening and flying low into the west wall of the Pentagon. And so, again, it changed the whole evolution of how we prepare for warfare, both strategically and asymmetrically. And all of a sudden, asymmetric warfare became front and center for just the everyday citizen in this country and abroad, as well as our military. So I want to fast forward just a little bit. One of the very important jobs that you've held, and you've held many, was the chief of the Navy Medical Corps. What were the most difficult challenges for Navy medicine during that period? And that was a time period when we were continuing our efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. What were the priorities of the Navy Medical Corps? And how are they different or similar to that of the other services? As the chief of the medical corps, I'm basically the top doc for the Navy. And I'm responsible to all those men and women who are in their training pipeline, their interns and residencies and fellowships, as well as those who are staff physicians. My responsibility is to make sure that they have the training, the education, the assignments, and that's the internal customer. The external customer, my job is to make sure that we have the medical units ready for testing when needed, where needed, as far as the physicians go, and make sure that pipeline stays robust and intact. And the challenge for all of us, regardless of the service you were in, was this was a very protracted war and required rotational forces longer than we had experienced in, in a very long time. And so from an individual challenge, I would have to send back certain wartime specialties in trauma. It might be like Wayne is about their surgeon or an orthopedist or a general surgeon or even an OBGYN who has abdominal surgical skills, critical care doctors, infectious disease doctors. Ultimately, uh, we were taking non-trauma people and not setting them to be traumatologists, but saying to be trauma support people, internists, pediatricians, the whole gamut. You do everything you can to make sure nobody's breaking during that, right? Because that was the heroism of all the, all the medics, from the doctors to the nurses to the ancillary support staff to, to our most junior enlisted. Some had to go back three, four, five times, and I would see them when they'd come back, and I, I recognized they were never going to be the same. And I made a commitment to myself that we were going to do everything we could to revitalize and to help refresh the folks who had been over there so much. And even some of the ones who wanted to go back didn't all felt guilty if they weren't over there. We had to surround them and protect them and sometimes retain them against their will because we needed them to recharge their batteries in normal medical fire rather than the heinous trauma centers of, of Baghdad and Kandahar, the Anwar province. So I th if you sign up to be in the military, the good news is that you, I think this day, our American citizens appreciate what you do. They respect what you do. They thank you for your service. And the reason they do it is because they realize anybody wearing the uniform may have to stand up when needed and step forward when called. And so many, many, many physicians had to at that time, to the point where we, as we started even depleting reserve forces. So uh, the reservists became a huge component. Reserve physicians, I was responsible for making sure they integrated well into the force. One of the blessings of uh, 
joint command and of joint service as you get to appreciate the heroism of all the various services and, and how no one service has a monopoly on it. And so I came away in awe of what the Army does. I came away in awe of the Air Force contribution, even though I had been up to that point primarily a Marine Corps and Blue Water Navy-centric position. Uh, I got a healthy appreciation of when you're on the battlefield, you don't care who's who in the zoo. You are taking care of each other's back, and you're all brothers and sisters under the sun. So you mentioned something that I wanted to explore a little bit more, and that is with such a high op tempo, we really had to rely on Compo 2, Compo 3, the reserves. You mentioned that your job was trying to make sure they could integrate, and then when they came back, also integrate back into civilian life. What was the hardest part for you? You had good communication, supposedly, with the active duty, but maybe less so. It's harder to coordinate that large reserve force. What kind of challenges and how did you overcome that? Like most things, and I think this is a tenet of good leadership, when you have a challenge with various groups of people who work for you, who you either don't know what they do. You can't do their job and it's sort of a mystery how they do it, but you have to lead them. Or they may not quite understand your day-to-day culture and have to get up to speed in a hurry. You find champions within the group. You find leaders within the group that are respected by that group. You bring them in and you say, okay, look, there's a little bit of chaos in the system right now. We've got people whose hearts and souls are willing, but may not quite understand the tempo that we have here every day, whether it's in the hospital as backfills or whether it's going downrange. I need you because of your credibility with your own groups. I need you to be my leaders and my champions and, and get cultural and tactical alignment on what we're doing. I'll support you. My door is always open to you. My phone is always available to you if you see something or need something. Be that canary in the mine shaft and let me know immediately so that I can get you the resources you need or I can at least commiserate with you over ideas to fix this. So I, I think that was it. And then the other thing I, was, I really felt was my responsibility as chief of the Corps was to figure out how to memorialize the immeasurable knowledge we were gaining on the battlefield and not have that evaporate and dissipate as it has in previous conflicts. That's tough to do. The corporate knowledge and experience that's gained in taking care of that kind of trauma, in that kind of illness, in those acute arenas, you have to be able to transmit that and memorialize it so it doesn't evaporate. When Vietnam ended, the the trauma surgeons that had been stationed in Da Nang and other places were, were, there was no one better. I mean, they had acquired skills and had learned using Army helicopter proximity and dust-off methodology for medical evacuation. Uh, they were saving lives at rates that were only dreamed of previously. And so, and not only with, with the medevac skills and the medic skills, but with the surgical techniques and advances that had been and those, we learned sort of the hard way that when all those folks left the military after Vietnam, that knowledge sort of left with them. And we had a whole range of positions, especially surgical trauma-centric positions. We'd never done that. The next war, while you're fighting the current one, an example would be 
one of the challenges today is that so many surgeons today are coming out of the residency programs with the great laparoscopic techniques and learning how to do all these great intra-abdominal procedures using laparoscopic and robotic surgery, which is perfect in civilian hospitals. But many of them haven't had to crash open a belly. And unless they're a trauma doctor and they're a general surgeon, they haven't had much experience with having to secure a lacerated liver or immediately get a hold of a ruptured spleen or a severed main artery intra-abdominally or intrathoracically. And so if there's any good that comes out of war, and I put good in quotes, it's that we, we learn things and do things that are transmitted to future warfighters and to our civilian counterparts. The way you're managed today, if you end up in a heinous automobile accident on 995, uh, some of the techniques that'll be used by the paramedics as well as the OR crew were developed at war. So that was part of my goal is to memorialize that knowledge and make sure we keep it fresh. So we talked about assimilating cultures and from 2008 to 2011, you were the Navy component commander. What did you find were the differences in the culture between the Army and the Navy and how that impacted the merger of those two institutions? I could talk for days on what I think the, the cultural differences are between the services and how each one leverages their culture to give themselves their best opportunity to serve. I had a full head of hair when I took over at Bethesda to facilitate the merger. Challenges there were basically to put over a couple million square feet of new construction and keep the facility fully operational for the significant numbers of wounded that were coming in, uh, ultimately to receive all casualties that were going both to Bethesda and, and to Georgia Avenue, to all to Wisconsin Avenue at the Bethesda Walter Reed facility. But we were building the airplane while we were flying the airplane. And we had to keep all the guns going. And so here's what I found. And I was blessed with amazing cultural army leaders like Jeff Clark and Chuck Callahan and Carla Holly Bowen, who were, yeah, Carla was the, my counterpart at, at Walter Reed when we were doing the merger. And then Chuck was assigned to me as my deputy commander, the first non-Navy deputy commander at Bethesda to acclimate people. And sometimes you use a carrot for culture and sometimes you use a stick. And as I started hearing little skirmishes on the wards and other places about people from Walter Reed saying, we do it this way, and people from Bethesda saying, we do it this way, and somebody from the Air Force saying, we do it this way, you try to do a little coaching, you try to appeal to people's better sides. And eventually, I just had to say, I had to put out an all-hands commander's intent, any patient who suffers at the hands of a cultural or a care dispute from their former institutions, I will court-martial. They're individuals. And that's just called directive leadership. That's just, you know, I need to be the Tito of Yugoslavia. And if you two folks from your different Slavic origins get into a fight on the street, I'm going to hang you both. It never really came to that. But my intent became very clear that that was a non-negotiable request, that there could be no, no patient caught in the middle between the way two systems do things. That said, more often than not, the teams worked flawlessly together and really learned from each other. The Navy grew out of a distributed force. It grew out of a force that was scattered all over the world with decentralized command in the form of their ships and the Marines in the form of their platoons that are scattered around the globe. And so the Navy grew up with more of a 
on-scene command philosophy, which is, Captain, you're at sea. There's no way we can get to you from Washington, D.C. or Hawaii or anywhere else. So you've got your ship. You know what to do in it. You have ultimate authority. Whatever you do and wherever you need to point your ship to take care of the mission at hand, God bless you. Good luck. And, and if you really made horrible decisions, we'll hold you accountable for later. But you have that autonomy. The Army was, and, and much of this was explained to me, by the way, by my Army leaders who worked with me, and they, the Army was a much more centralized command structure because of large troops and, and the logistical assembly of large troops. And the Marines, who were an expeditionary force, right, called their bases camps. It's Camp Pendleton. It's Camp Lejeune. To reinforce the Marine that you're in a camp and you're expeditionary, and your job is to be out and about there and not stay in one place too long. Um, the Army, their bases are forts. We're going to establish a fort. We're going to keep this fort here, and we're going to protect all those who surround the fort and are inside the fort. And so, and the challenge, of course, with this, with OIF and OEF was it was such a protracted war that the Army eventually was holding ground but needed reinforcements. The Marine Corps, which was not used to being in one place for a long time, did come in and stay for a long time in support of the Army and vice versa, the Air Force as well, and, and the medics as well. So it was interesting to, to see how problems were solved at senior or lower levels between the two services. Um, the Army being a very intensely logistical service with a huge tail of logistical support to support a pointy fighting force. And the Navy being mostly a forward deployed mentality deployment, uh, moving around, never staying in one spot and trying to get its logistics as it could on the open seas. But at the end of the day, it was an easy, it was an easy task really to get people to keep their heads in the game. I, I'll tell you one funny line. I had the Secretary of Defense, I think it was Leon Panetta, who came by when we were in the thick of the merger and we had the new command yet. And we were, you know, all cats and dogs working. He said, how's it going? He, he sort of asked the same question you did when he goes, how's it going? Like, you got some sailors and your soldiers here. And they sort of, you know, through history, those have been sort of cats and dogs in, locked in a pen. And how do they get along and everything? I said, to be honest with you, I said, if you look at the wards and you look at where the care is being given by these these teams these from different services, it's like a little league game where the kids are all out there pitching and hitting and laughing and running the bases and throwing people out at first and catching fly balls. And I said, and you look in the stands and the parents are all strangling each other. The leaders are sometimes getting into it, but the folks on the wards and the folks delivering the health care at the deck plate, they got their heads in the game and they're taking care of business. Did you find that you had to make any adjustments in your leadership philosophy to help deal with that situation? Or did you just feel like that reinforced what you were doing was working? It, during that time, there was a great, great push, and I was a champion of it. And I sort of got a little bit of a, of a pretty good reputation for being a guy who controlled purchase care costs. I was a huge believer. And this circles back to what I said. I started by training in the outside, I did a residency in a civilian academic system, which had a VA, a civilian hospital, and a university teaching hospital. So I was around the medical economics of the private sector a lot more. I also used to moonlight for the 30 years that I practiced medicine. I would moonlight a lot to either do interesting things or supplement my salary or whatever. So I had a healthy appreciation for the good and the bad of the private sector. But I was determined to reduce our private sector costs by not exporting as much care out. I understood why we did it because the incentive system in the military for healthcare is a little bit different. It's the people in the military are altruistic. They're a volunteer organization. They are working very hard to take care of the patients. 
but they don't necessarily feel the pain if the patient is sent out to the private sector. And the private sector is not unhappy to receive that patient. The more, the merrier. So the natural tendency sometimes is to not retain the patients in the system. And we were spending a fortune doing that. So I came to Bethesda sort of with street cred of a guy who had reduced purchase care costs in every command I'd ever been at. I, I amped up productivity. I reduced sending patients out unless it was necessary, of course, and increasing production and, and saving the taxpayer money and increasing, I think, the morale and the welfare of our staff by, by being busier and doing more cases. Command philosophy change. I got to Bethesda. Everybody was like, okay, what are you going to do for us with purchase care as we merge? And what are you going to do? I said, nothing. Listen, I said, here's the two things we have to do. And you do those two things and nothing else matters. You don't do these two things and nothing else matters. I said, number one, we take good care of the patients. We make sure that no patient is caught in, in the crosshairs of cultural differences or we did it this way here, we did it that way there. I said, that's number one. I said, you take good care of the patients, everything else is forgiven. I said, number two, we have a joint commission inspection that comes up as soon as we close the doors on the new hospital. As soon as we put the sign up that says Walter Reed National Military Medical Center at Bethesda, we get the initial new hospital joint commission survey. I said, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to not pass that survey. We are going to knock the lights out of it. We are going to make those surveyors feel that they have never seen a hospital as well-prepared and running on spec as well as this one. There will be no growing pains in this new hospital. I said, they said, what about purchase care? I said, did you hear me say purchase care? I didn't say purchase care. I said, you take care of those two things. I said, America cares right now about the wounded warrior, the wounded warrior's family, and all the people that support them. I said, that's what we're going to care about. So that was my command philosophy, and the people appreciated it. They came in, they said, thank you very much for telling us what your priorities are. Thank you for telling us how we can stay out of trouble. Thank you for telling us how we'll get into trouble. Colonel Callahan at the Joint Commission Survey Outbrief, where the Joint Commissioner stood up and he said, we've been to a lot of new hospitals in our, in our line, and we're cheering for you. We're rooting for you because we know of the patient population you take care of. But ladies and gentlemen, we don't remember seeing a hospital better prepared and better adherent to the uh, survey requirements than the new Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. There's a picture of Chuck and me holding our hands up together in the air. Army, Colonel, Navy Admiral, true affection, holding our hands together in, a, in sort of a rousing cheer for what we did together collectively. So that was quite a difficult problem set that you were given. Having a chance to look back in the retrospectoscope, is there any decisions that you wish you could have made differently or changed something during that time? Well, I'm sure there are some. Again, going back to my champions, right? How are you going to do this? How am I going to get Army surgeons, many of whom had been at Walter Reed, some for decades, uh, Bethesda as well. These were the staff physicians who were excellent at what they did, very good at what they did, many of them taking care of senior decision makers in the country and, and were firmly entrenched. And I went to those and I said, look, you guys have the credibility with the rest of the staff. You're, you're looked at as gods here or Colonel so-and-so. You're looked at as this amazing surgeon or this amazing critical or pulmonologist, pediatrician and uh, captain so-and-so. You're, you're regarded by the medical staff as, as the go-to person in this and you, you hold all the corporate knowledge. I need you guys to lead the cultural interchange. If the, if the kids see you doing this, they'll follow suit. They'll follow your lead. 
And I made the assumption that all those guys and gals, mostly guys at that time, but all those guys and gals would be on board and just sort of take my request, my decision, my direction and do it. I found out the hard way that a couple of them couldn't get over themselves. A couple of them couldn't, could not do it. They were just too much grieving the loss of their army digs in, in Georgia Avenue or Bethesda's autonomy as the National Naval Medical Center. Most of them were fine, but a couple of them weren't. And when you have, and I, I likened it to riding a 10-seat bicycle with me and the handlebars and pedaling uphill and my, my amazing senior officers from both cultures on the, the remaining nine seats pedaling with me. And every once in a while, I'd turn around and find somebody who was standing straight up on the brake pedal. And so you had to deal effectively with that person, sort of had to set an example, because if you didn't, um, they would form their own little cabal of people on both sides of the fence. So for me, it was, it was learning the hard way that just because a commander says to people who are very seasoned senior officers that sometimes, and you guys will agree with me, culture can eat strategy all the time. And that happened at times. You were part of the discussions that eventually led to the formation of the Defense Health Agency. Can you first describe to me the conditions that led to the military deciding that the Defense Health Agency was a pathway that they should go down? And then is there anything else that you think the DOD should be preparing for in this DHA endeavor and change that's occurring right now? The Defense Health Agency was really, necessity was the mother of invention in this case. Congress was looking at the number of personnel, the cost of health care, which, by the way, if, in, unless you're really steeped in health care, you don't understand how expensive it is. And, and I always found it a little bit frustrating that sometimes the military health system was, you know, attacked or accused of being such a large cost in the Department of Defense when you look at what's happening on the other side of the fence in the, in the civilian sector and healthcare costs in, in the United States and how they're eroding into GDP and how many people can't even afford it. And, but to the point of the DHA, it was designed to come in and do what I thought was a very good move. Not everybody agreed with me, but I thought it was a very good move, which was to find common lines of effort that are done in the peacetime healthcare system and remove the redundancy from those, bring in one best standard of practice. I never saw why there had to be a different system or a operating system for pharmacies, laboratories, IT, research, those sorts of things among the services. The best practice in a Navy pharmacy should be best practice in the Army and vice versa. We did that as a laboratory experiment at Walter Reed. We took the greatest hits of some of the things that people brought over from Georgia Avenue and incorporated them into what we do at Bethesda. And some of the Army people saw things we're doing at Bethesda and said, wow, that's a better way to do it. I wish we'd seen this before. So it can work. So I always felt that was the best thing to do, to remove redundancies, reduce the footprint of, of FTEs, save costs. The challenge is, is that as the DHA planted themselves in that, and very good people, and I'm, I'm a huge supporter of Kalita Crosland, the Army three-star lieutenant general. I think she's doing a great job. She's relatively new, and I think she's got the right attitude. But as it grows... You're trying to figure out how you're going to have the element of command for your MTFs, which is your bench for sourcing your warfighters or your warfighter medics for rotational forces. 
So you've got command of them sort of through an administrative command of medical care through the DHA, but the services still own them for OpCon into the war. And you've got to figure out how to deconflict that need. And I think that's what they're working their way through. Because at the end of the day, if you just one service, you can just grab your people from your one service and send them where you want and figure out how to take care of your MTS later. But if all those people are cross-organized into the Defense Health Agency in various roles, you've now got to figure out how to rapidly deploy them in a way that maintains continuity in the DHA. So I think the idea is a very good one. I think that it'll get there. I think it still has some growing pains in trying to work through its role as a combat support agency. But nonetheless, the services are are the force provider for combat sourcing. And so the services have to be given a big seat and a big vote as to how you're going to deconflict deployment assignments and requisitions for medical tasking. One of the other things that I thought was interesting in your bio was the Secretary of Defense appointed you to lead a task force for recovering warriors called the Recovering Warrior Task Force. Tell us about what instigated that task force and, and what you did with that. The task force was in, was in existence before I joined as co-chairman. It had been led by Bruce Green, uh, Air Force SG. And then when he retired, they had to fill the spot. And so SecDef asked me to do it. And, and Bruce endorsed that, primarily because of my experience caring for wounded warriors. I had a very vested interest and I think a deep understanding of that aspect of wounded warrior care. Also, I was pretty well-versed in some of the support organizations, both military and paramilitary support organizations that were caring for wounded warriors. Um, The task force was created because Congress was concerned, and rightly so, that there was not a coordination of services providing continuity of care or continuity of administrative support from the time somebody was wounded on the battlefield to the time they were discharged from the service and landed in the VA or in civilian employment. And they were correct around that. There was amazing orchestra of care from battlefield injury to echelon four care at Brook or, or uh, Reed or San Diego or Bethesda. Excellent. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't facilitate a, a, a more harmonious orchestra of care that resulted in record survival rates. However, administrative support for the families during that period of time and the rehabilitation and the need for housing and the need for children who may be relocated to be with their father or mother who's in a long convalescence and their schooling, all those things. And so the challenge was that, and, and at first there was nothing and Congress went crazy and they just started slamming their fists on the desk. And ultimately that created a new problem. A new problem was a wounded warrior and their family arrive. And as you both know, the big change, the huge change in this conflict or this war compared to previous ones was the rapidity of seriously injured people getting back to CONUS, right? Because in Vietnam and Korea, you might be there an average of 40 to 60 days in a major overseas military hospital before ever being relocated back. So the family has a chance to prepare themselves for your injuries. You have a chance to sort of acclimate yourself before you see your family or you're back in the States. But because of the way we change the trauma support mechanism and the way they're the most injured person in the world and keep them going all the way to the door at Bethesda or Reed or San Diego or Brook, all of a sudden you could, you could be in a devastating war injury and three days, four days, five days later, you're back in a hospital bed in Bethesda, Washington. 
So, and then the challenge became a hundred people came out of the woodwork and all gave you their business card and said to the wife, to the mother or the brother or the father, here, this is my card. I do this. I'm the VA. I'm the Veterans Benefits Association. I'm the employment thing. I'm the be- I, I help family. And so a family member would come up to me with this stack when I'd make rounds on the words, come up with the stack of these 30 business cards and say, what am I supposed to do with all these? And I said, yeah, I know we need to consolidate resources so it's simpler for you to intersect with the system. The Recovery Warrior Task Force is, was chartered to do that and to find ways to create continuity so that a wounded warrior could have and their family could have sort of a one-stop shopping and integrate the various support systems. Not the least of which, right, was the huge scene between two very caring organizations, DOD and the MTFs and the VA, the Department of the VA and their VA facilities. And it's taken a while. I think we've made great headway, but for a while, quick sea story, President Obama was coming through. He was... George Bush was leaving as I got into Bethesda. Obama was coming through. The president came through and was making his tour of the warriors. And he said to me, how are we doing on the integration of these guys and gals as they leave the service and go into the private sector and and are cared for in other areas? And I said, you know, it's interesting, Mr. President, because I can go up to my office here at Bethesda and I can get on my computer and I can, using what's called TMIP and some other electronic medical records that would work on aircraft carriers because carriers have the bandwidth to transmit the data. I can look on my computer and show you some lab tents of a sailor who's out in the South China Sea on, off the USS Enterprise. I said, but I can't tell you what's going on with one of our people who left and went eight miles down the road to the VA in DC. We've come a long way since then. We're not completely there yet, but finding a common electronic medical record and finding commonalities and how to integrate between the systems, there's been a lot of elbow grease put into that. So the task force was designed to look at those seams, look at those bumps, look at those issues, and find best practices. And for the next three years, we produced a very large end-of-year report to Congress on things we think should be implemented. You mentioned earlier that you donned the three-star jacket, and that ultimately occurred when you became the 37th Navy Surgeon General and the job which you had from 2011 to 2016. Tell us about your greatest challenges and how you overcame those issues. And also, what was your most memorable achievement during that time? Well, I think like most people, regardless of how high you are as a a senior enlisted leader or as an officer leader, the higher up you go in the organization, the more you enjoy the interaction with the crew and with the troops. The highlights of my job as Surgeon General was being able to visit the AOR, and thank and see and help support uh, the folks deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was to visit a branch clinic, maybe up in New Jersey or in San Antonio or in Yuma, Arizona, uh, and thank the people that are sort of out there in the hinterlands doing major work for us. I think that's the great advantage of try to get away from the desk every once in a while and get out and, and mix it up with the crew and mix it up with the troops. It's, it's really reinvigorating. I will tell you that the challenges then are similar to what they are now in that the war was front and center and supporting the war, supporting the warfighter and providing care for the caregiver as well was front and center. Those were challenges. We had a lot of people who came back Um, not just warriors, but also medics who came back, batteries really discharged from the war, and some with with PTS, 
uh, and and all the attendant behaviors and challenges are getting those people back feeling integrated into society and into family. War is hell. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. Um, it's dramatic, and it has stories of heroism and drama, and, and it's fascinating in that sense. But it's it's war is hell, and it's hell on the people who are fighting it. And so, I think that. That was a challenge. And then as the war ends, and this is true, I think, for every leader in America who's ever been in war and then as war ends, all of a sudden, whereas money was no object, once war ends, money becomes very much an object. And the Congress and everybody else is saying, okay, how are you going to cut costs now? How are you going to trim? How are you going to give us money back? How are you going to find efficiencies? Hence, the DHA started to come into focus as I was Surgeon General. And I was shaping it with Doug Robb and others. And I think that as Surgeon General, I also, because I'm from the Navy, and this has a little bit to do with my life after the Navy, but because I'm in the Navy, right, I talk about these decentralized platforms of care. It's a whole different concept of providing care to a ship that's a thousand miles off the coast of India or in the middle of the Atlantic. And so I was vitally interested in pushing technologies that could facilitate and assist and, and help people in those isolated areas, whether they're Marines or ships, get the care they need. So I really championed hard telehealth, telemedicine, and trying to figure out technological advances so that a corpsman, medic, or a young doctor on a ship with 1,000 people or 2,000 people out in the middle of the sea would have more at their disposal to take care of what they do. Saw this was born out of my job as the Fleet Forces Surgeon back under Admiral Nathman. And he called me into his office one day and he was in charge of all the, basically all the fleet from where he sat. He was in charge of submarines and carriers and, and all those various sub uh, TICOMs reported to him for that kind of stuff. And uh, he called me in one day and I was his Fleet Forces Surgeon. I was a one-star Admiral. And he said, We've got this wonderful platinum care, platinum 15 minutes and golden hour of care on the battlefield. And the Marines, it's saving Marines. And it's just, it, it makes you cry to see how it's all coming together to change the lives and keep these young warriors alive. I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, doc, what about my ships at sea? What if somebody takes a major hit and there's major trauma at sea? What can you do for them? I said, well, be honest, sir, I don't have the proximity to helos or being able to get people. He said, okay, unsatisfactory answer, doc. He said, you're going to figure out in your time here what you can do to save the life of a sailor in the middle of the ocean, the same way we'd save the ray, a marine in the middle of the desert. And so we concentrated on that and we started looking at more agile ways to support care. And, we, and one of the ways to do that is you have to bring technology. And one of the areas where they're really good at that and being isolated things, taking good medical care of their own in small units is special operating forces. They have some really sexy stuff that's amazing that they can bring with them that's agile and yet very effective in taking care of and, and resuscitating and minimizing the effects of trauma if it occurs to their unit. So we, we started leveraging some of that technology and we started looking at the civilian sector. So as Surgeon General, I started the ball rolling and pushing very hard on trying to figure out how to create distributed virtual care. I left the Navy and then I went to the private sector and I worked hard doing that. And then I ended up in, in Cambridge when I was invited to join a cohort up in Harvard, which ended up being supposed to be one year, ended up being two years. And the irony of this is I came up there thinking I'm going to utilize Harvard's resources 
to really get telemedicine on the map. Well, I arrived at Harvard in January of 20. And so by March or July of 20, everybody was pretty interested in telemedicine because we were in the, in the thick of the pandemic. So I didn't have to push too hard. And I found myself trying to keep up with some of the advances instead of having to lead them. So going back to your time as the Surgeon General and the war is ebbing, the money is becoming tighter, and you've got to compete with the line of the Navy. You're trying to convince DOD leaders, Congress, about the priorities and the needs of military, especially Navy medicine. How do you advocate for that and, and make sure that you're getting what you need at that level, competing against other priorities, which are seemingly just as important? I think I took a page from my medical training, which was the patient is a partner. And sometimes if the patient has a very serious ailment or injury, try to enlist the patient and other family as, as, as partners and lay out what we call in the military, the ORM, the operational risk management, lay out for them the various courses of action and the estimated risks and benefits of each. I always said that, and I think my patients appreciated it. I didn't sugarcoat things, didn't conceal things. I let them know I was their fierce advocate and partner and ally, and I would do everything I could to help get them through this. The same was true when I would go to meetings and I would have maybe the personnel guy from the Navy or the Marine Corps or Congress on one of the committees or subcommittees yelling at me about, you've got too many doctors on active duty or you've got too many corpsmen or this is just ridiculous or your, your footprint is too large. And I didn't get defensive about it. I didn't immediately start turning over desks and chairs and stopping around. I simply said, listen, if you say you're going to do that and you tell me to do that, I'll salute smartly and go do that. I said, my job is to tell you to the best of my ability and truthfully, what you may or may not be giving up by doing that. And you need to understand that if you take that from me, then I may not be able to deliver what you currently have reached as an expectation. Assuming that I don't have a lot of fat in the system, assuming that I'm not bloated, all my people are gainfully employed. The other thing I had to do, this is all military services medics linking their arms together and telling the line this, right? One of the reasons I stayed in the military was the warfighter. I mean, I, I was in awe and still am of the warfighter, whether it was a, a, an E-1 or an O-10. Warfighters to me were who I wanted to stay with and support. Sometimes they would say to me, Matt, I'm not sure I can afford all your contingency in between wars. Love what you do. God bless you for it. But there's a lot of contingency. My answer was, I get that. I understand that. We do have surge capacity in the MHS. They don't have in the civilian sector. I've been in the civilian sector. I can tell you there's no surge capacity. In a bad flu season, civilian hospitals are calling around to military hospitals to see if they can borrow ventilators. I said, so we have surge capacity. I said, that said, while we are trading, while we are your bench ready for war, we are also taking care of peacetime needs. We're really the only aspect of the military that, while it's training for war, is also fully gainfully employed in peacetime garrison needs. That is not true in a tank battalion. A tank battalion in the Army is not carrying household goods for somebody under PCS orders from one place to another, not carrying their cell phone their tank. Aircraft carriers are not carrying passengers, paying passengers from San Francisco to London. So they're out there training, but that's 
the whole military is predicated on contingency. So my job was to simply tell people, if you do this, this is what will happen. And I, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I had great respect for the person who looked at me and said, I hear what you're saying. If I cut you here, if I cut your budget, if I cut your troop personnel numbers, you're telling me you may not be able to perform this function anymore in this particular operation. Yes, sir. I hear it. I'm willing to take that chance. Yes, sir. I respect that immensely. Sometimes they'd say, I had no idea. I get it. We're going to look elsewhere. So I think that's all you can do. Readiness is contingency. And readiness, by definition, is contingency. If you're ready, it means you're ready to go. You haven't gone yet. Once you go, you're no longer ready. You're in it. So readiness is expensive. So you mentioned that you went to Cambridge. And at that time, you were the, a senior fellow at Harvard University in the Advanced Leadership Initiative. Tell us about that program and why you chose to participate in it. I was working at a, at a apparently large healthcare system in North Carolina at the time, and, and I was enjoying it specifically because I wanted to learn a little more about the challenges of healthcare in the private sector. So I went to work for a large healthcare system that took care of a range of people all the way from the very indigent all the way to the very affluent. Uh, large tertiary care medical centers with level one trauma centers all the way to the smaller community hospitals. And it really was a great education for me. And I was able to, I think, bring some of the great things about military care and military hospitals to that system. And I also learned a lot from that system that I'd say we should have used in our military healthcare systems. So it was a nice, nice blend of the two to, to learn and be in both camps at different times. Somebody nominated me to be in the cohort at Harvard, and they called me up and they said, we have about 40 people that we're inviting this year to come up. They're from different walks of life. We usually have maybe one military person in the cohort, and then we'll see people who are retiring, CEOs, ambassadors, people who are big in business, that sort of thing, from all walks of life, from the very commercial, private, entrepreneurial sector, all the way to the public service sector. And come join us at Harvard and work together, pick projects that you want to make a difference on, leverage the resources of the university. Uh, in return, you and your, your wife, She's invited too. You and your wife can take classes anywhere you want at Harvard, any school, business school, various schools across the, the campus, colleges across the campus. Mentor some Harvard students and then work on your projects to make a difference in social impact. And so as with any place like that, great friendships are formed with some very impressive people. All of us were supposedly in the stage C of life, stage A, you're learning, you're burning, you're churning, you're in your entry-level jobs, you've finished your education, stage B, you're in the main crux of your career, wherever you're going to put the meat of your efforts to earn your living and do your best, and you're going to take that to as far as you want to or can, and then stage C, you're tooling down and you're looking for a way to give back and make a difference, utilizing the experience you've learned along the way and then utilizing resources given to you by other experts in other fields. So that's what that was all about. We then became a senior editor for the Harvard Social Impact Review, which looks at disparities in healthcare. We recently did an episode on food insecurity in the military and the social impacts on military families. Does this review analyze socially important areas for military families? And if so, what are the areas that present the greatest potential for change? The review is designed to cultivate either articles or interviews or op-eds from various people who are looked at as luminaries of a subject 
who have credible experience in it or training in it, to talk about ideas that are socially relevant, that, that can make a social impact. It, it breaks itself up into domains such as health, economics, race and gender, those kinds of things. Democracy is one of them. And we cultivate articles and, and interviews to do that. There's no specific lane for the military. However, not that long ago, just a few months ago, we did an article on homelessness. The better preferred term is most people who are unhoused. Featured a Boston physician who is a psychiatrist who spends a large part of her time. She's trained at the best schools and she could choose a very elite practice if she wanted to, but she doesn't. She goes out among the homeless, among the unhoused, and 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 works with them and, and tries to provide support and work with community programs. It's a huge challenge in our country, right? In a country that has such an embarrassment of riches in certain places, we have so many areas where people are living on the street and unhoused, not to mention, right, the number of veterans that are living on the street, the number of veterans that are still suffering from post-traumatic stress or other behavioral illnesses that are wandering less listlessly. The VA has made a huge, huge concerted effort to try to create community outreach, suicide hotlines, rapid in behavioral health interventions. And still we're losing, we're losing our brothers and sisters at almost epidemic rates through suicide and through behavioral health issues. But in this article, they had talked about how they had, she had been working with the army to look at predictive factors of people who were in the service and to, to see if there were studies and cohorts they could do to look and see who might have more risk factors than others for ending up in those kinds of straits after they leave the service. So I thought it was fascinating. But you're absolutely right. I think a lot of America doesn't appreciate that a very junior, young, enlisted family, they may have a couple of kids, and depending on what their other expenses are, depending on where they're housed, whether it's on base or on the economy, and with inflation and groceries, and regardless of your exposure to the commissary or the PX, it can be very challenging. And the one thing I think that we do well in the military, not everybody would agree, but I think most would, is we're pretty good at providing equitable health care across the spectrum of our service members and their families. We do make that a priority to make sure you have access to health. And if you don't, we'll get it for you. I had in my work in the cohort up in Cambridge, I mean, the health disparity in this country is embarrassing. Depending on your zip code can change your lifespan by 10 years, simply by what side of the zip code you live on. So I think we need to tackle those problems. And I think we need to figure out how we can as a country, look at everybody in the same boat, whether you're uniformed or civilian private sector, if you are suffering from depression, if you're suffering from addiction, if you're suffering from behavioral health illnesses or behavioral modifiers for your physical health, I think we're all brothers and sisters there and we need to start figuring out how we can not compete with each institution, but share the load. Looking back, the majority would agree that that COVID was a once-in-a-generation impactful event that really changed the way the world looks at these kind of epidemics. 
And one of the things that you looked at while you're at Harvard was vaccine hesitancy. And now that we've kind of come out of the peak of COVID and have a chance to look at the data and really evaluate efficacy of vaccines and look at potential side effects, looking back now with the data that we're starting to see, what kind of thoughts do you have about vaccine hesitancy and what we could do better in the future if we face another one of these generational things and have to develop some sort of intervention like a vaccine very quickly. You, you nailed it, Doug, when you said this is a generational, I'd love to think the interval is going to be much longer than that for the next one, but maybe not. The next one may be two years away, the next one may be 200 years away. But the question is, we were caught off our feet by COVID and we were infected by this uh, analogous to the Spanish flu, where our immune systems had no protection against this novel virus variant. And it played havoc with our system and created a pathophysiological reaction in many people that they succumbed. And you, you can't dismiss the fact that we were overrun with morbidity and mortality in the early going. And you have to decide if you're going to be someone who says, just let it run its course, and it's going to take a lot more people with it before it's done, but eventually you'll get herd immunity. Or we're going to sequester everyone and try to protect people as much as possible from getting infected by simply giving them a barrier or isolation while we work on some way to give them an artificial immunity so they don't have to catch it. Um, and that created, of course, political and scientific havoc. As physicians, we're all scientists. And I don't think any of us should go blindly into belief of anything that comes down the pike. We should be asking, what are the tests? What are the research? And with some things, we have a more leisurely approach to them. And with others, we don't. If somebody gives you a new lifeboat, it's never been tested before, but they think it's pretty good and your ship starts sinking, you're not going to wait around to see if it works. You're going to jump in that. If you have a chance to test it and take it out of the water for a while, you're going to do that before you have to use it in a dangerous situation. We weren't given much time to do this. That said, uh, I was interested in vaccine hesitancy, vaccine rejection, vaccine dismissal, vaccine acceptance. I was interested in all that because of my roles in the Navy and having to be the final appellate authority for any sailor in the Navy who came in and said, I'm not taking your frickin' vaccine for flu or for tetanus or for whatever, either on religious grounds or on my own innate fear of science or whatever. So there. And then the administrative policy of shipmate, when you sign up for the Navy, you sign up to be part of a team, and we have to do force protection. And we can't afford for you to get the flu, much less give it to other people, because we need you at your post. We need you at your gun. We need you at your ship. And so there are certain individual rights where you have to say, I'm going to have to trust the people who oversee me and administrate for me to know what's best for the service and best for me. I recognize for some people hearing that, that just raises their blood pressure because it treads perhaps on individual rights. But the military fighting force is all about one team, one fight. And so I came with that mindset into the COVID epidemic. And the biggest thing that's affected us with COVID vaccinations is disinformation. 
it's just simply disinformation. Or it's, it's the inability of, of a lot of people willing to do critical thinking and just simply believing what they hear on the, the television or the social media. Now to get to the crux of your question, what do I think about it in times past? I think that vaccines made a huge, huge difference. I think that your chances of suffering severe illness from COVID greatly, statistically outweighed the chance of you suffering an illness from a vaccine. Were there side effects from vaccine? Absolutely. Have vaccines been shown to cause in some people, including young people, thankfully, usually a transitory myocarditis in a very, very, very small number of people? Yes. Has the COVID, catching the COVID virus itself been found to cause myocarditis? Statistically, probably more severe than the one you might have gotten from vaccine? Yes. So I understand, though, the human nature of wanting to reject somebody ordering you, telling you, or making a condition of your employment to stick your arm out and having something put in it that you're not sure has the longevity of research in it. That said, my studies there and my efforts there were, were more looking at the disinformation that came out. By the way, not all the disinformation was from people who sort of had just fast and loose with the truth on social media. Some of them came from our own governmental organizations who, well-meaning, were still trying to figure out how to put the whole puzzle together and were not coherent early on in their thinking. The difference was that they really met well. People from, from NIAD or from the NIH or from CDC or the White House were saying some things early that turned out to be proven incorrect. This was a pickup game, and we were trying to move as fast as we could. I'm not excusing it. I'm just explaining it. And I'm saying that we were in a war with COVID, and there's a fog of war. And so vaccines got caught up in that fog of war. We have forgotten in this country what it was like in the 1940s and 50s when mothers were terrified each summer that their children were going to end up in an iron lung or, or partially paralyzed from polio. Uh, you have to find somebody who was a mom or a dad at that time to have them truly explain to you the terror in their heart and the absolute joy they felt once they felt there was a vaccine out that could protect their child from polio. And the incidence of serious polio was less than, than COVID. So here we were with a disease that had serious repercussions, but a lot of people got polio and it was just a bad cold for them, just like COVID. So I think we don't learn from history enough. We don't go back and look. We become complacent with the fact that every day when we go to sleep at night, there's a thousand organisms that are trying to get you. Our body's own immune system usually saves the day so you wake up in the morning, but sometimes it needs some help. If that help's coming from a credible source with a big enough N number of study, and the threat at the door, to me, outweighs the threat of the help, it's a no-brainer. I recognize that's an oversimplification of a question and a concept that has many people polarized and animated. If you look back at your career after being the Surgeon General, what would you say is the best advice you received? For me, and I think this is true for all the services, but for me, command was the pinnacle, right? To be entrusted with command. And command in the Navy, I think it has a, a historical tradition to it, stemming from command at sea, stemming from when the King of England gave the commanding commander of a ship 
a charter and at the pier and said, go out and find me new trade routes and figure out if our enemy has reached the Americas yet or whatever. And I don't care how you do it. It's your ship. You take care of it. You're in charge. And so the autonomy of command and the responsibility of command was always something I never took for granted. And I had the opportunity to be in command a few times. And people ask me, was being Surgeon General the most important part of your life? Did you like being a, a senior admiral? And did you like being Surgeon General? I felt very honored and accountable in those roles. But I felt most honored and most accountable in, in my command roles, being responsible for sailors and their families' welfare and taking care of them in the good and the bad times, and them supporting me. Uh, best, best advice I ever got was from a four-star admiral who I admired greatly, who I had worked with previously. And when I sent him an invitation to my command, he was obviously too busy to do it because he was running in a COCOM at the time. But he said, Matt, my piece of advice as you go into command is if it doesn't feel right in your gut, it probably isn't. And I never forgot that. And I never forgot one hard-earned lesson at sea. I, we were out in the middle of the Atlantic. We were on the Saipan. I was a young medical officer. Just during the middle of the day, I decided to go get a candy bar or something out of the ship's store. The ship's store has a rule that could only have five sailors in at a time. So there was a long line. One person would leave. One person would go in. And big signs there said, officers have head-of-line privileges. And I'd I go and there's this long line. The line's mostly young enlisted guys who look like they've been coming off their dog ship from, from the nighttime. They, they smell of JP5 aviation fuel and diesel and engine oil, and they just look tired. So I just sort of get in line with them. And a couple of them turn around and go, sir, you, you have headline privileges. That's all right, guy. And uh, you, know, you don't have to ask them twice. They just turn around and go, okay. And so uh, as we're standing there, the commanding officer of the ship walks by. As he walks by, somebody else, attention on deck. We all come to attention. He says, as you were, as you were. And he walked by. He says, hey, gents, how y'all doing? We said, good, sir. He goes, all right. Love you every day. Keep it up. And he walks by and then he, he comes back and he sort of looks around the corner of the passageway. He says, hey, doc, can I see you for a second? Yeah. So I go, yes, sir. And he takes me out of your shot. He says, what the hell are you doing standing in line? I said, well, sir, I said, these guys look like they've been out. They're tired. He goes, he goes let me ask you a question. Goes, do you think I give you head of line privileges because I like you more than them? Do you think I give you those privileges because I think you're more special? Do you think that I'm more impressed with your rank? I said, well, sir. He says, shut up. It's a rhetorical question because I'm going to answer it for you. He said, I give you head of line privileges because in theory, you have more training, more expertise. And because of your rank and your role in the ship, you have a job which can only be done by you and no one else and is more crucial to me than their particular jobs, which can be done by many of them. Matter of fact, I, I love them probably more than I love you, especially now. But I need you at your post more than I need them. So your time is more valuable to me. So that's why I want you to get in that store and the hell out in a hurry so you can get back to your job. He said, do you understand? I said, yes, sir. He said, now, if you do have the time to stand in line, and there's nothing you need to be doing on the ship right now. I need you to climb up three levels to the O1 level, jump overboard, and swim home. And he said, so what's your choice? I said, sir, I'm going to go back to my, my post. He goes, good answer, Doc. I never forgot that the rest of my life in understanding what training and rank, accountability, and responsibility is. And when we're given the privilege and the honor of senior rank, we're given privileges, 
we're giving more responsibilities, but we're giving the ultimate accountability. And the last thing I'll say about that is that I, I came to learn over time in watching it happen sometimes, unfortunately, that when somebody salutes you, it's usually because they have to. They pass you somewhere and they, you outrank them and they salute you. If you get to work with that person, know them for a while, ideally you've earned that salute. When they salute you, it may take a month, six months or a year, but when they salute you, they, they're like, I know I have to salute Matt Nathan, but I feel good doing it because he's earned my salute. Might take me a year to get that from you. I could lose that in 15 minutes or 15 seconds by some ridiculous transgression or forfeit of my integrity at an outing, at a party, at a meeting, at a function. And so what can be so hard earned over a long time can be lost in the blink of an eye. And I never forgot that as well. So those were the great lessons that I think I learned as I advanced through the ranks and making sure that I took care of the most precious cargo that was ever assigned to us, which is those men and women who wear the cloth of their nation, who serve when needed, and their families. Looking back at your career, what would you say was your most memorable clinical case? Wow, it's that's 30 years of practice. There have been so many as an internist. Well, I have to confess that, that one, of the, one of my greatest thrills was I took an acting internship in surgery as a medical student, fourth-year medical student. And they just, I was their scut puppy. I mean, they just, the surgical team brutalized me in doing all the work they didn't want to do early in the morning. I didn't become a surgeon, by the way, because I just can't get up that early. It's just ridiculous to have to get up that early to round on all your patients and then start in the OR at 6.30. I'm making a joke, of course, uh, but I did find that you have to have a DNA for enjoying that kind of lifestyle. And, but I worked on these guys and I was, I was tireless. And at the end of the rotation, a senior resident came to me and we had a, we had a patient. This is the VA. We had a patient who was going to get a BKA because of diabetic vascular peripheral artery disease. And his foot was dying and there was no choice. We had to take off his foot. And the senior resident came to me and he said, you, my friend, are finishing tomorrow. You're scrubbing into this case and you are lead surgeon. And so they stood across from me, of course, and point every little thing for me to do while I did it. The procedure probably took 30 minutes longer than it should have because, but they let me do it skin to skin. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that, that the surgical mentality was one of, we rode you hard incessantly, but you measured up and you're, you're a member now and we're going to give you a, an opportunity to to do something clinically that, that many of your peers aren't going to do. And I followed that patient for six months afterwards. He did great. And so I, I really appreciated that. And then, of course, for me, it was, and I'll, I'll give you the speech that I give young internists, which is, you know, it's nice to be the heroic procedural physician in the emergency room who all of a sudden sticks a, a 14-gauge needle in someone with a tension pneumothorax and saves their life. Or... The surgeon who quickly stabilizes and puts a stent in a rupturing abdominal aorta and saves their life. Or the cardiac surgeon who does a bypass for somebody who's got an impending myocardial infarction. Those people are doing things for a patient so that maybe they can still play with their grandkids the next day. I said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be sitting there in your office and you're going to be making the hard sell for people to change their lifestyle, to take their statins to reduce their cholesterol, to quit smoking, to eat better, 
to exercise. All the things that are not glorious, that are not glamorous, that are not sexy, that are hard to do. Nobody makes a TV show about a doctor talking to a patient about their cholesterol. I said, however, if you do that and do it well to enough people, I guarantee you that somewhere you've just given somebody back to their grandfather and they're going with their grandfather at Disney World instead of visiting their grandfather at the cemetery. I said, so never forget what you do day in, day out, trudging along to make a difference in people's lives. One thing we like to ask senior officers that have spent time in the Pentagon is, do you have any humorous stories or behind-the-scenes stories that would be interesting for our audience to hear? The Pentagon, I've always looked at as sort of Stockholm Syndrome, right? I mean, when you first get there, you can't believe anybody could live like this. You have to park so far out. You, you can't figure out where you're going. By the time you, you get to the room, you realize there were 18 different ways to get there in half the time that you didn't know about. And after you've been there a long time, though, the more you get in it, you start feeling like I've broken the code. And, and now I've broken the code, I sort of hate to give it up. And you, you almost have to call a hostage extraction team to get you out of there and tell you that there's life outside of the Pentagon. And, and you want to reach escape velocity, right? Every time I had orders out of D.C., I'd look back and say, well, this is the last time I'll ever be stationed in D.C. And of course, that's not true. You, it's sort of like Godfather Part 3, they keep pulling you back in. I don't, I don't have any particular story other than the fact that I remember one day I was called in to see the chief of naval operations. I was the, the surgeon general. And he said, hey, I don't have very long for you. I, I've got this group of young officers that were sailors of the year or something that are coming in. I'm supposed to meet with them. And so I said, I got it, sir. I got it. So we talked for a few minutes. We ran over a little bit. And I'd been in his office countless times. So, I mean, I always was in awe of the office. But for me, it wasn't that intimidating. And as I walked out the door and opened the door to his office, I saw these four young men sitting there, just eyes looking like deers in the headlights, almost shaking, realizing they were going to walk in and see the, the four-star chief of naval operations. And I looked at the secretary, you know, and, and she sort of gave me this smile, like, yeah, first time these guys are here, probably in the Pentagon. So as I walked out, I closed the door and I looked at them and I got this horrible pain look on my face and I said, Man, is he pissed. And I just walked out. The secretary put her head down, trying to bite her lip from laughing. And I thought these guys were going to, they started looking at each other like, do we make a run for it? Do we do whatever? And then finally, she looked at him and said, guys, I think he's kidding. And they said, oh, thank God. And I left. And I always felt sort of bad about that. But uh, that's the kind of thing somebody would have done to me at one point. And, and he was a great CNO. I mean, he was just an engaging, engaging guy. So I'm sure they had a great visit. But I remember that episode. And then I remember being lost and, and wandering throughout the E-ring sometimes and, and having to start all over by finding the Secretary of the Navy's office and then walking left four corridors and then right and then get lost again and go back to his office and start over again finding something else. So rites of passage in the Pentagon. So when you look back on your military career and, and think about your Navy career, what do you hope people remember about your time in Navy medicine? I'll answer that by giving you the advice I get. My advice is worth what you pay for it, obviously. And, and it's important to me, but it may not be important to everybody. Some today, but a lot when I was in, on active duty, especially as a commander of a major medical center or as a surgeon general, and I would hold calls 
or all hands calls, or I, I go have an admiral's call with my junior enlisted or my junior officers, my JO. Some would walk up to me and they say, how do I get to be a surgeon general? How do I get to be an admiral? How do I do all that? And it's a, it's a legitimate question. But my answer to it was, I honestly can say that in my case, and I know there are people I've observed who are not like this, but in my case, I came into the Navy somewhat by accident. My master chief, my force master chief used to use the line that he came in the Navy and forgot to get out. That wasn't my case. And I came into the Navy assuming it was an organization that was not part of my DNA. I was a little bit more of a West Coast, Californian, Bay Area, rabble rouser and didn't really have what I thought was military DNA. And then when I went to medical school and my residency in the private sector, even more so, I thought that. And then once I got in, I realized I was surrounded by amazing people with amazing service above self who are really excellent, excellent healthcare practitioners, nurses and doctors and techs and corpsmen in the uniform civilian setting. So I stayed and I stayed for one more tour and I stayed for one more tour. And I eventually met my wife who was in the Navy and we stayed in together for a while and she got out. And so I made it a career. And I honestly can say I was never worried about the next promotion or the next tour. I was really only worried about doing the best job I could because I didn't want to embarrass myself. I never wanted to be somebody who people thought, wow, I can't believe we gave him that job and he let us down. So I really worked hard to, to do as good a job as I could in my present role. I became a detailer at one point. For you guys who weren't in the Navy, that's an assignment officer, the person that you call to talk about your next assignment. And I would occasionally get phone calls from people who had moved to a new duty station. They'd been there maybe a month or two and they'd call me up and They'd say, hey, and I'd say, hey, why are you calling? They'd say, well, I want to talk about my next assignment. And they said, well, you just got to the one you're at. Worry about your next assignment as you're finishing this one. We'll take good care of you if you've taken good care of us. I was never like that. I just, just wanted to do a good job and the, the good things came along. And then the other thing I would give advice to, to people is no matter what your skill set in the service, nurse, lobotomist, preventative med tech, surgeon, ER doc, pharmacist, establish your credibility in your skill set first. Make sure you're credible. The, the good old days of, of, of people who were sort of just so-so in their personal profession, rising to the top and leading the organizations, those days are gone. You have to establish your bona fides, your street rep as a, as a good doc, good nurse, good tech. Get that credibility first. Concentrate on being the best physician, nurse, tech you can be. Nothing wrong with having aspirations for executive medicine. Nothing wrong with wanting to say, I want to lead the organization because I see so many things I think could be improved. Nothing wrong at all with that. Nothing wrong with ambition. But your ambition should be the best you can be at what you do and then build on that to lead. It always worked for me. And one of the kindest things I ever heard, I wasn't there, but one of our Navy doctors retired and I was a surgeon general. And somebody called me up and said, I was at the retirement of Dr. So-and-so who retired as an 05 in the Navy out in San Diego. And I said, okay, why are you telling me? He said, because your name was mentioned. I said, I don't remember him. He said, and there's no reason you would. He brought you up because you were a lieutenant commander at San Diego taking care of his wife at the time who was in your clinic, who people had 
they sent her to you because she'd been given the runaround and nobody thought she was really sick. And you did a few tests and you examined her and you determined what it was and you got her better. And he said he never forgot that. He'll never remember you as Surgeon General. He'll always remember you as the doctor who took care of his wife. And I thought, hey, you can't do better than that. You really can't. If, you, if all you ever wanted to be in your life was a doctor and then you happen to be a Navy doctor and then as a Navy doctor, you happen to be the Surgeon General and you did a good job and people thought you were fair and square. We can't do better than that. We've been speaking with retired Vice Admiral Dr. Matthew Nathan on Wardock's podcast. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insight with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Well, thank you guys for what you're doing to create a platform to give people like me and others an opportunity so that people who don't know our system or who are entering it, getting ready to climb the ladder, can get a little better feel for uh, what it's all about. Challenging times always are. Every generation that moves on like me looks back and says, this is what we would have done if we were there. But it's different times, different circumstances, different challenges, and to sit and offer advice when I can, but mostly remain with great respect and awe of the people who are, are, have boots on ground right now. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.